very, very welcome indeed to the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our Institute of Advanced Studies in the Arts and Humanities. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. I see many faces that I don't recognise, and that makes me feel really good, because that means maybe you're coming for the first time, you're extremely welcome. Hopefully uh, it will be the first of many times, because I know we're in for a real treat tonight. Um, just to give you a little bit of context here, Michelle LeBaron, who actually my colleague Catherine Lawless will introduce in a moment, is a visiting research fellow at, here at the Hub. And over the past couple of years, we've had uh, over 100 visiting research fellows from 40 different countries. So the visiting research fellow program is a very important element about it, you know, it's really what we do, and it's a way of celebrating the arts and humanities and the importance of the arts and humanities, but also it's a way of promoting multi and interdisciplinarity, because in terms of the schools uh, that are represented here in the Hub, there's over, over 20 disciplines, and I think Michelle encapsulates at least... I was going to say, law, <laughs> drama, gender, uh, peace and reconciliation. You know, she really is a wonderful example of exactly the sort of person that we really welcome here. Because this is a safe space where it's okay to fail. Not that she does, she excels. Um, uh, it's a safe place to, to take risks, to do something a little bit different. So I'm so delighted um, that we've had uh, Michelle LeBaron with us uh, for the whole term. We're all going to be crying now. She's getting ready to go on to South Africa before going back uh, uh, to Canada. Um, uh, but we're already plotting ways of bringing her back. Uh, so hopefully she, she will come back, hopefully for an extended period of, of time. I'm also delighted to welcome Miriam uh, here this evening. Uh, and I think what we're doing with you, Miriam, is a first for the hub. Uh, we've never had an artist uh, capture, so we've commissioned a, a piece of, 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 of work and, and Michelle will say more about what Miriam's going to be doing, but I think we're all going to be busy this evening. Um, <laughs> so again, we're in for a real treat and you're all extremely welcome. And now I'd like to hand the microphone over to uh, Professor Catherine Lawless, who is the head of the Centre for Gender and Women's Studies here at Trinity, which is in the School of Histories and Humanities. And Catherine is really one of two mentors uh, uh, for uh, Michelle because all of our programmes, obviously we work very closely with the academic schools and the university library. Um, and so without further ado, if I could invite Catherine to uh, uh, invite uh, you to uh, introduce Michelle. So thank you very much. Well, good evening. Thanks very much to, to Jane for, for this. And I'd also like to say just how great the hub is. Um, you know, the, these these wonderful talks, these wonderful pro this program of visiting scholars is just it's been enormously enriching. Um, and uh, and I'd like to welcome Professor Michelle LeBaron here this evening. I've heard a huge amount about Michelle over the years from my colleague Dr. Mary Condren, who's sitting here in the front in the front row. I know that you two have collaborated at many events um, and, uh, and much of your work on, on, on peace and, and uh, reconciliation. So, Professor LeBaron um, is from the University of British Columbia. Um, she's Professor of Law at the Peter A. Allard School of Law in the University of British Columbia. And that is just a very tiny synopsis of what she does. She has not allowed me to read out the pages that I printed off of the computer of the a number of places where she's allied to, where she has taught, where she has lectured, where she has researched. 
Um, so uh, instead, all I can say is that she will be speaking tonight on how arts, the arts, uh, create and recreate narratives and uh, their role in uh, peace and reconciliation. So. Thank you so much, Catherine and Jane. This is an extraordinary place to be, as you can hear. It is truly a feast of ideas and a place where many different things can collide in very exciting ways. So it's really a delight to be here. As you heard, we have the delight of having Miriam Logan with us also this evening. So as we explore the topics of the role of arts and artists in commemoration, we will have the gift of Miriam working in resonance, actually. So Miriam and I have talked a few times, and we've noticed that actually our ideas have kind of danced in parallel over distance. Miriam is based in Cork. Um, Miriam is someone whose work um, has touched and moved me greatly for a long time. And so when I thought of giving this lecture, it seemed to me that it would be really wonderful to have the opportunity to do actually what we're talking about, to have multi-modality, that is to have spoken word, yes, to have engagement from you, I hope you're ready, and to have also uh, Miriam uh, working in counterpoint, working in resonance. And so we'll see how this happens. We haven't done this thing together before, although we have danced in stone circles. So we thought that was good preparation. <laughs> and uh, so let me tell you just a tiny bit about Miriam, and then we will proceed with our evening. So Miriam is a member of Visual Arts Ireland. She has an MA in Comparative Aesthetics and the Arts. As a painter with a background in mediation, she has an ever-renewing interest in the creative process in all of its phases. She thinks that arts create possibility for meaningful conversation and engagement. And we're about to see exactly how that works this evening. So thank you so very much for coming up and uh, being part of the evening. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Great honor. Yes. And we'll check in with Miriam from time to time in case she has anything to say in words as well as images. And uh, meanwhile, we will enjoy what emerges on the campus. This is not meant to be a one-way or a two-way transmission, but rather an engagement where we all think together about the extraordinary year that is going on right now in Ireland, the year 2016, in which the 1916 events are commemorated, and we think together about the role of arts and artists in that year. So I invite you to actually notice what arises for you. You know, commemoration is about loss, and it's about what was born in a certain time. And because of that, it's tender territory. So I invite you to notice your own tender territory and your own thoughts and ideas as they come up and to actually make notes of them. We will um, give you opportunity to share some of those things, those images, those ideas, those feelings that come to you as the evening proceeds. All right. Well, I begin with a disclaimer. Because, as you can tell, I am not Irish. And indeed, the thought of speaking about the role of arts and artists in commemoration of 1916 um, 
filled me with a certain amount of concern, if not dread, because in fact, you're probably all much more expert on this topic than I am. And indeed, there will no doubt be ways that I touch nerves that I'm unaware of, doors that I opened, uh, where things may come out that I don't expect to be there. And all of that um, is one of the hazards of traveling from another place and peeking in to what's going on in a context. But even so, I invite you to notice those things and to share them as well as we dialogue together. And I invite you to listen with generosity and with attention to what arises for you, what feels right, what feels dissonant for you. Sometimes the outsider can say awkward things, but those things might be things someone inside the context would not say. And so while I haven't set that as my objective, um, still it could happen. So let's see. Um, I think actually that timing has worked in my favor for this evening. And the reason is that we're still in a very strange phase in our world. It's post-Brexit. It's post-President-elect Trump. And so those people who we had imagined to be experts, political analysts, pollsters, commentators, they were all wrong about both of those things. And I think one of the reasons that they were wrong is that they didn't recognize just how much there is an appetite in the public to have things be genuine to actually not have things be airbrushed, to have things um, said and spoken from the heart that actually touch people in a deep way where they live about their concerns. If those things are part of what we learn from these um, very strange and difficult events, then um, perhaps there will be some openings that arise as a result. But as I think about the role of arts and artists, I think that, in fact, we've never needed them more. When Romeo Dallaire, General Romeo Dallaire, came back to Canada after being in Rwanda, you may recall that he was the general who the United Nations had stationed in Rwanda uh, just prior to and then during the genocide. And when Romeo Dallaire came back to Canada having <coughs> witnessed things no one should witness in terms of the horrific genocide that took place there. He was asked, do you have any hope for humanity? And he said, if there is hope for humanity, it will be through armies of artists. So there's a contradiction for you. But actually, the arts hold contradiction, armies of artists. The arts give us a kind of ritual container in which we can touch things which are delicate, touch things which are tender, perhaps touch something hot without getting burned, or float in some murky water without drowning. The arts, of course, always couple one thing with another, something you wouldn't expect necessarily to be put together with another thing. And in doing that, they give us 
a new perspective. They give us a way to be together, even as we observe the shadow side of ourselves. And we have plenty of evidence in the world today about the shadow side of ourselves. So I invite you then to come with me on a kind of journey of exploration in relation to what is happening this year in Ireland, and I confess I really mean Dublin when I say Ireland because um, it's a very big country, um, in relation to the arts and commemoration. It's the hundredth year since 1916, and that's just beyond the reach of a lifetime. And that's one reason it's so powerful, because we can almost touch it. You know, you can almost reach out and feel like you weren't there, but you know someone who was there. You're connected to someone who was there. It's not that far away in history. When we get to 2066, it starts to feel more remote. So that's one reason I would suggest to you that 1916 is such an important moment to pause and to look and to ask, what is going on in terms of commemoration? You see, it is my thesis that Ireland has a lot to teach the world about the role of arts and artists in commemoration. That doesn't mean that I would, um, have perceived perfection here, but I perceive a deep history of valuing arts and artists, if not with public funds, at least in general. And, um, and that that is actually a very, very important tradition which then plays out through commemoration. So the way that I thought I would talk with you about this subject tonight for a few minutes is through the frame of alchemy. Alchemy, as you would know, concerned people many years ago, more than a hundred years, who wanted to turn lead into gold. And we could say, actually, that artists want to turn lead into gold. They want to take the heaviness and the trauma and the pain of the past and transmute it. Not forget it, not reproduce it, not amplify it even more so that it's even more heavy, but find a way to transform it to actually transmute it. And of course, alchemists use physical materials. So we will talk about four different works of art, three pieces of theater and one piece of dance performance in relation to elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And then we will see what arises for us out of that. And I have actually a small clip of a film to show you, which um, as a kind of counterpoint, is from Peru. Because there's a wonderful theater artist, Augusto Casafranca, who talks in the clip about the role of arts in commemoration in actually helping us heal and helping us cleanse ourselves from the residue of the past. And actually, sorry, And actually cleanse ourselves. Ah, helping us heal heal and cleanse ourselves from the residue of the past. And so we think about what sort of commemoration is important. And we realize that part of what is important is commemoration which is inclusive, which is complex, 
which actually allows for a full spectrum of experience. It doesn't tell only one story, and it acknowledges that there are many forgotten stories, as you said. Artists, of course, live always with complexity, and so it is through the arts that we find those vehicles that help us come present to the kinds of complexities that may unsettle us. Um, the four works that I'm going to use are These Rooms by Anu and Koshkem, uh, Fergus O'Connor's The Casement Project, Frank McGinnis's 1985 play Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Toward the Song, and Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars, which was, of course, uh, re reproduced um, in It's Not Over during the Dublin Theatre Festival here. If you haven't seen any of those or some of those, that's all right. I plan to give you just a small summary of what uh, happened during those um, as a way of illustrating some points. You know, last evening I was coming home from a short flight to the Cotswolds and I lost my passport. It was stamped at Dublin Airport. They let me in. I was very happy. And uh, then I lost it. Thereupon, thereafter, I lost it. And that is all I could think about for the evening until I actually figured out where it was and went and got it back. So it's a happy story. But what I noticed from that is that when something is lost, something important is lost, it takes all of our attention. And so if we think about what we're commemorating, and the loss that is a part of that commemoration. It really takes a lot of our attention. And so what I notice in the Dublin of 2016 is a huge amount of attention, especially on the Easter Rising, not only, but particularly on that. It is said that 60 to 70 percent of the government budget for the decade of centenaries will have been spent in 2016. So it is remarkably important. Some people say that that's because this was the year that was the big bang of Ireland. It's the birth time of Ireland. And other people say, oh no, it is not, including some of you. <laughs> and so if it is or if it isn't, which we will not try to establish tonight, we still ask, why is it so charged? And of course, part of the reason it's so charged is because it is a time, as someone said earlier, of ideals. It's a time of promise. It's a time of coming together and looking for an opening. And we have to remember at the same time other things that were going on in the wider context because commemoration is never about one event. It's always about the present. And if we look back, to 1916, we see all sorts of anti-colonialist movements going on in the world. We see revolutions. We see here in Ireland debilitating poverty and struggle. All of those things are a part of what shaped the events of the Easter Rising and what shape our understandings of them today. We can think about the context in which we speak right now, and we can recognize that all these commemorations have been shaped and nudged to serve social and political agendas of a current day. 
And so I was very heartened to hear some of the words that some of you said about 2016 in particular, because you talked about reconciliation, you talked about actually seeing beneath the triumphalist kind of approach of 1966 into another complex way of remembering the events of 1916. It's a lot. I can feel, as I speak to you, the complex weight of that remembering. I'll start then with It's Not Over, which, as we said, um, was based on updating Shauna Casey's The Plow and the Stars, and it was produced here um, in Dublin uh, as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival. And those who wrote it said, in a year of blank waving and distinguished guests, we want to mess with the party. We want to complicate the narrative. And so their express objective was to throw into sharp relief the hollowness of ideology and the insidious effect of rhetoric on the minds of those who subscribe to them. They wanted to create an experience which would cause people to question the coupling of heroism and violence and sacrifice and masculinity. Um, <coughs> not a small agenda, we might say. Um, and um, in a four and a half hour production, um, they worked to do exactly that. I have some questions arising from that particular production. How can commemorations re reinforce positive <coughs> aspects of identity while unsettling things that might have been airbrushed in the past? I don't plan to answer these questions, by the way. I'll just let them float amongst us and we'll see what arises. <coughs> How to get perspective, even if things that are apparently sealed off seep in? You know, things have a way of kind of coming in, even when you think you have compartmentalized them. And so one of the things that has sometimes been strange to me in the events that I have attended in relation to 1916 is the absence of discourse in relation to the troubles. Um, and the question of how, like water, those two things might seep into each other. Um, if we think that um, actually everything is fine and um, those discourses aren't seeping into each other, um, perhaps I could remind us all of Jamie Reed. You know that name. This is an eight-year-old boy who attends a school in County Mayo. He was chosen, perhaps because his school is in the Taoiseach's constituency, in the autumn of 2015 to be the first one to receive from the Irish Defence Forces an Irish flag and a replica of the 1916 proclamation. After receiving it, he was asked what it meant to him. What did the Irish flag mean to him? And he said, it indicates that we're going to fight against the British. We are not going to let them stomp all over us. And so you have eight-year-old Jamie <laughs> taking a particular meaning 
from the Irish flag presented to him last year. And we begin to ask questions of where are ideas flowing and what is happening generationally uh, that someone of that age would take that meaning from that gesture. Well, we'll leave those questions amongst us and we'll move to uh, the production by Anu and Koshkin on, uh, called These Rooms. That particular production um, was meant to animate and to bring to those who encountered it women's accounts of what happened on the 28th and 29th of April 1916 in a row of houses on North King Street. Those women's accounts had only recently come to light. And so in a, um, in a kind of brush with fire, Kashkem and Anu brought light to those accounts and drew people into um, those events. I attended these rooms twice, and I found it a very unsettling experience. When I first came in to the house that had been um, created to look like it really was either 1916 or 1966, because it went back and forth, I was invited to play darts. Uh, so was a friend of mine here in the audience, and he did very well at darts, actually. Um, so much so that people thought he really was a part of the production. <laughs> and so we played darts with the cats. And before we knew it, the whole thing had begun, and we were somehow implicated in it. I found myself in a kitchen drinking tea with women whose beloveds were being shot in another part of the house. I found myself going inside a room and seeing what appeared to be a dead body on the floor and going out. I found myself in a bathroom watching a specter of a woman try to wash blood off her skin <coughs> clothes. When you find yourself in such a situation, you have the opportunity, and probably it's mostly unavoidable, to actually ask, what do I have to do with this? What do these accounts have to do with me? Is it, in fact, that those events in 1916, where killings took place, certainly extrajudicially, and certainly not as part of what anyone really paid attention to, not even in 1966 when the survivors of those men and boys who were killed, there were 15 of them killed, the youngest being 16 on those two days. In 1966, the survivors were not invited to the official commemorative events. Those stories were inconvenient at that time, too complicated. Um, and so we ask, who are you in the midst of all of that? And how is it that we take responsibility for what we've seen and for what we know about our capacity to engage in violence with each other, whether that violence is physical with arms or whether it's another kind of psychological violence? 
It seemed to me that the fire that Anu and Kushkane brought to that production was very illuminating, and as you can tell, um, I haven't forgotten it. It does also raise the question, again, about who is not commemorated. So the stories of those women were not widely known, and yet finally came to light and were considered so important that a production was made about them. During the production, one of the things that happened to some of us was that there was a British soldier, apparently one of the perpetrators in the house, who kept begging members of the audience, touch my hand, I can't feel anything. Well, this is one of the groups that we don't hear a lot about in commemorations of 1916, the British. When I was thinking about this, I thought about going to the Hiroshima uh, Peace Museum in Japan and how extraordinary it is that there, the discourse is not about the bad Americans and what they did in dropping the atomic bomb, but it is about preventing nuclear war and creating peace. So they very much resist that idea that there's a good guy and a bad guy to um, use Western Hollywood language for a moment. And it made me wonder what would commemoration here look like if that narrative were resisted. I wonder how many of you know the story of John Robert Forth, who was born in Leeds in 1898 to a working class family. Familiar? John Robert Forth thought um, when he joined the British Army at age 16, that um, he was going to fight the French. It was going to be really a big adventure. He found himself instead in Dublin during Easter week of 1916. On Northumberland Road, he came under fire, was shot, and killed. His family could not afford to repatriate his remains, and the army would not because he died at home. And so he is buried here in Dublin in Grange Gorman Military Cemetery. Do we remember stories like that, or are they just a bit unsettling so that we prefer the remembering that um, is more familiar? The casement project, which was created by Fergus O'Connor um, to not reenact the times of casement and his experiences, but rather to evoke something of the ethos and to put us, actually, I would say, in the line of fire. It felt very assaultive, actually. There were a lot of artillery and shots um, being fired to echo the execution of the leaders of the Rising and what was going on in the Battle of the Somme. And during the production, each dance artist in turn at different times repeatedly says, I am Roger Casement. I am Roger Casement. Echoing the Charlie Hebdo, I, je suis Charlie, right? I am. And so, as the audience, we ask the question, if I am Roger Casement, what do I see? What do I know? The play, the, the dance production begins with an exhumation of Casement's remains. So we ask, what is unearthed in us as we are present 
to such an event. And we think finally about the element of air and observe the sons of Ulster marching toward the sun, of course, a play from 1985 written by Frank McGuinness, a play which tries to decenter the constructed ideas of heterosexuality and heroism. We might ask, how does the play, written back in 1985, evoke nostalgia? Who can write about those kinds of things and where can they be shown? To whom? And who will talk about them and who will never go to see them? One of the most remarkable things about that play is that there are no females in the play. It is entirely male. It is a very masculine uh, coupling with heroism and with tragedy. And it leaves us, I think, thinking a lot about gender and how gender constructs um, and is used to construct narratives of sacrifice and heroism. Well, those are a quick trip through a number of different artistic productions that are part of the many things put together for commemorating 1916, and in particular, the rising. We have alchemy, if we think of the four of them together. We have the flow of it's not over, asking questions about what seeps into which narrative from where. We have the light and the shadow of these rooms with women's forgotten stories, the terrible unearthing of the unsettling figure of Casey's and the chimeric trip back through time with the sons of Ulster and the song. Remember I told you that commemoration can play a role in healing and in cleansing. And so we're going to listen just for a moment to Augusto Casabranca talk about that. Just a bit of background. The civil war in Peru took between 80 and 90,000 lives, mainly of Quechuan people, that is, indigenous people in Peru. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up after the peace agreement um, was chaired by a very interesting man named Dr. Simon Lerner. And Dr. Lerner realized that actually he and his commissioners could not go into Quechuan communities and say, tell us your stories and expect that that would not be jarring. And so they asked Yuyachkani, who are a theater group who were established before the Civil War began and continued to work during the Civil War, to precede them into communities and to uh, prepare people by doing theater about the war to share their testimonies. These theater and dance artists whose pieces I've touched on this evening do that too in different ways. Ways that touch us or not, ways that succeed or not, but ways that all try very hard to unsettle the stories that we have had handed down to us. Sadly, a couple of weeks ago, we lost someone wonderful, Leonard Cohen. And he said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And it is through the arts that cracks get created in cemented stories that then begin 
to allow other shreds of light to come in. And so I thought I might end by quoting the wonderful words of Michael D. Higgins, who says, let us revive the best of the promise of 1916, so that those coming from those coming generations might experience freedom in the full sense of the term. Freedom from poverty, from violence and insecurity, and freedom from fear. Because as W.B. Yeats has told us, too long a sacrifice makes a stone of God. Thank you.